Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I just want to, again, kick off the way I did two weeks ago. When when Pastor Chad and myself, our leadership team, considered preaching in 2022, we, we have preached the last few months really strong words. I wanted one idea. I wanted to put into your guts the courage and the conviction and the refusal to ultimately shrink back as the world seems to be losing its mind. I wanted to put in you, the, in the deepest parts of you, a, a fearlessness that's based on Jesus Christ and his power. And so over the last few months, our series has been to help you understand what it looks like to love God and to love people and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing here at Dwelling Place. And and I told you that if you were to ask me after church and pull me aside and say, hey, what are you trying to accomplish? What is it you're trying to do? I am trying to unleash you on the world in such a way that the powers of darkness tremble. They literally tremble when you live your life. That's what Jesus wants for you. And so we have been over the last two weeks now talking about what it means to be liberated from our past to really live in the next, that next really can be now. Last week, Pastor Chad shared about that. Two weeks ago, I shared about this biblical subject called strongholds. And we can't move into what is next until we talk about how to be set free from our strongholds. So we talked about the strongholds of our past. Now we want to talk about what it means to obey God in the next. And again, Acts chapter 7, if you have your Bible, let me give you the backstory right quick so the text itself will make sense. So by Acts chapter 7 and chapter 8 in the book of Acts, the first wave of persecution against the church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem has hit. Now remember when we talk about the church at large or we talk about the church worldwide, we are, we are talking about all Christians, but at this point in time, we're only talking about a few thousand Jewish believers in one city called Jerusalem. Now, there are a few scattered around Jerusalem, but they're all in Israel. And so the first wave of persecution against Christianity begins to hit them, and they scatter out just to get out, just to get away from their persecutors. So one of the leaders of the church, his name is Philip. Everybody say Philip. He's often called Philip the evangelist, but I want you to see that he's not ordained as an evangelist. He's ordained as a servant or what we call a deacon. He was ordained to wait tables. That was what God had called him to do within his community. He is a steward. Let's read about it. Acts chapter 7, 5, and 6. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on, but God promised him and his descendants. Um, that's the wrong text, by the way, Acts 7. That's... Um, that's, that's all right. We'll, we'll come back to it in just a second. Acts chapter 7, if you're looking at your Bible or it's there on version or the card, you'll see that, that Stephen, the Bible said, full of the Holy Spirit, right, was, was appointed by the early church leaders to wait tables. Why? Because the Greeks, which had been coming into the Jewish faith, right, their ultimate widows were not getting taken care of. And because their widows were not taken care of, what ended up happening is they had to, in order to not take away from the ministry of the word and prayer, appoint these deacons. And these deacons were to engage. These deacons were to be able to serve, right? And so Stephen is one of those first that's anointed as a deacon, right? And he begins to serve the church. So next, next chapter, Acts chapter 8, okay? Here's where we're going to start, verse 14. Philip is now driven from Jerusalem to Samaria because of the persecution And at Samaria, he preaches and has an amazing revival. It says all of the people were in one accord and they gave heed to the things which Philip preached. And they saw signs and wonders and all that he did and that God accomplished through them in Samaria. And they believed y'all. And there was this like mass water baptism. Basically, the whole town is baptized in water. Then the apostolic leadership that is still, and I want you to take note, please take note. The apostolic leadership that is still in Jerusalem, here's what has happened up in Samaria. So they leave Jerusalem and they go up to Samaria to begin to see what's going on up here. That's where we'll begin now. Acts chapter 8, next slide, verse 14, 15, 16, and 17. Acts chapter 8, verse 14. 
All right, Acts chapter 8, verse 14. Uh, yeah, Bible or... Thank you so much, friend. Appreciate that. Acts chapter 8, verse 14. Notice what the text says. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, that's the apostolic leaders to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an interesting text. So these early believers in Samaria had what we call an evangelical experience. That means they came to know Christ, but they're not wanting an evangelical experience now. They're wanting to add to that in a Pentecostal experience. So you realize they've come to know Jesus, but now notice what the text says, that they're opening their hearts to receive the second work, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for as yet he had fallen. He, who? The Holy Spirit had fallen on none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning they had only been baptized in water. They had only become followers of Jesus. Then, verse 17, they, who? The apostolic leadership laid hands on them, and the Bible says that they received the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit. Fascinating. You skip down to verse 25 and 26, and I want you to take note of this. The Bible says that after Peter and John had seen what had taken place in Samaria, the text says, and I want you to see it, they made their way back to Jerusalem. So when they testified, read with me if you're looking at your Bible, and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And the Bible says, now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, arise and go towards south along the road which goes to Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert which is desert. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your hand and just place it on your heart. And let's pray together. Can you pray with me? Father, with our hands on our hearts and our minds as open as we know how to get them, we're asking today for you to do all the rest. I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would brush aside every barrier to divine communication, that you right now would rush in over the precipice of our souls, and you would deal with every person in this room in their inner person that when we leave this room momentarily, Lord, we would leave changed in Jesus' name. And everybody said. So let me just give you a reality. The first few chapters of the book of Acts could be subtitled, God trying to get the early church to obey. That's really what these first 10 chapters of Acts are. If you remember back to the end of Jesus's earthly ministry, he dies on a cross. He's on the third day resurrected. He spends 40 more days on the earth. And the Bible says the last things he says to the disciples before he leaves the earth is this, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. He said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to obey all things I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. In another place, he said, go ye into all the world, everybody say all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. It's so simple, but it reminds me of like a Monty Python skit. Because the disciples say, okay, we hear exactly what you're saying, Jesus. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, and we know exactly what that means. Stay here in Jerusalem and don't talk to anybody that's not Jewish. That's what they do. For the first 10 chapters, they disobey Jesus. They do not do what Jesus asked them to do. They stay local. They stay in their own tribes. They stay in their own Jewish people. Sometimes I think we make God feel like we do with our teenagers. Hey, son, go clean up your room. Do you understand English? Do you know the words that are coming out of my mouth? Go clean up your room. Yes, dad, I understand perfectly. I understand perfectly. Lie here on the couch until dinner and then leave with my friends and hang out all evening. Right? The whole concept of the first 10 chapters of Acts is that the church in Jerusalem, watch this, is feeling the tension, next slide, to stay where they are and the tension of what's going to next. Am I going to stay where I'm at or am I going to go into all the world and be obedient to Jesus? Am I going to live in this tension and constantly disobey or am I going to surrender fully to what Jesus has asked me to do? But what finally causes them to actually leave Jerusalem? Well, notice that the Bible says that they're meeting in the temple. 
So they're not just in Jerusalem, they're in the temple. And they're still clinging to the historical, theological foundations of their Jewish faith. So they're still meeting in the temple, even though they're now Jewish Christians. And in the temple, they're on Solomon's porch. Now, if you don't know what Solomon's porch is, I'm going to show you an image in just a minute. It's a portico that runs along the outside of the temple where uh, next to the outer court. And, and yet every day, the believers would gather together on that porch, and God is saying to them, hey, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So a tension is very present in these first 10 chapters. You say, Craig, well, what finally got them out. What finally got them into next? Well, God does everything in the world. He gives them signs and wonders. He even gives Peter a vision on a rooftop in Joppa. But what finally drives them out of Jerusalem is not their own volition. It is persecution. It was persecution. Now, when I was a kid, we spent time at my grandparents. I had great relationship with my grandparents on both sides, but particularly my dad's grandparents, they lived on a mountain in Chattanooga called Mowbray Mountain. And it's a small house, really, really humble abode, but I had a concrete porch. Anybody have a grandparent with an old concrete porch? Had a big old concrete porch, and the adults would get up under the porch in the evening time to get up out of the blazing sun, right? And so there were so many kids in the family, so I remember my most vivid memory, all the kids would play around in the grass right out in front of the porch, and I can still remember getting on my bike. I mean, even with training wheels, right? And we would go back and forth. And then we would play blitz, or not blitz ball, but old school wiffle ball out there, right? And we would hit the wiffle ball. And then we'd come back and, you know, get banana popsicles. My mamaw always had banana popsicles in the deep freezer. And so we would get our banana popsicles. But all the adults would hang out on the porch to stay out of the sun. And I can still hear to this day, I'm 36 years of age. I can hear to this day my parents saying to me, hey, there are so many acres here at Mamma and Papa's house. I want you young people to get off the porch. Get away from us and go play. Go do something. Have you ever noticed, young moms, how your children want to play right around your feet? How they want to stay right up next to you? I mean, just once, just once, get on a really important phone call with somebody that's in your career, and perfectly normal children will go demon-possessed in your house, okay? And they will scream, and you'll have to make up and, and talk and run out of the house. I mean, they will go crazy, right? I mean, we, Meredith and I have this conversation daily almost. Get away from us, Knox, Marley, and Harper. Leave us alone. Get off the porch. Go do something. You have a whole house to play in. Get away from us. I can hear my dad saying, get off the porch. And his volume intensity would rise, right? Because he'd get more and more upset. And we thought we'd get popped, right? Pop right off the porch. You'd be butt overhead. We'd go off into the grass. It translates to today. Meredith and I find ourselves doing the same. You could subtitle the first 10 chapters of Acts, get off the porch, Leave. Do what I told you to do. Shoo. And what I want to do is I want to obey God before he uses whatever means necessary to drive me off the porch. I don't want, I don't want to disobey him reluctantly up to this place that he, God, has to unleash the dogs of persecution to drive me out into the world. So God uses persecution to drive them off of the porch in the New Testament. But here's what's amazing, friends. God does the same thing in the Old Testament. So I want to pause on our text here in Acts. I want you to go back with me just for a moment and see how this same principle is true in the Old Testament. Go to the book of Joel with me. I want you to see this. Joel chapter 2, powerful text. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, all the babies. Let the bridegroom grow out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing rooms. Let the priest who minister to the Lord, watch this, weep where between the porch and the altar. Between the porch and the altar. And let them weep and intercede and say, spare your people, O Lord. Don't give your people to reproach that the nations will rule over them. And then the nations will say, where is their God? Now these verses found in the book of Joel are often quoted in songs, books, messages. But have we applied them to our daily intercession? Now, here's what's amazing in the Old Testament. The people would gather on the porch. Can I show you a quick image of this? They would gather on this porch. That's a number one. On the B here, you'll see B is the brazen altar. On the A at the top is the, the altar. B is the molten sea. And so all of the crowds would gather in the Old Testament right there on the portico, on the porch. They would get up next to the front doors, 
okay? And they would stay away from the priests that were down between A and B because the priests were weeping uncontrollably. And they're constantly representing God to the people and to the people God. And they're constantly saying, God, when we put this sacrifice on the altar, you see A, altar, then the second, that altar would be a place of receiving of that sacrifice, but then there would be a second reception and the fire of God would come down on the altar and the fire would burn on A. So what the priests did is they ministered there between the porch and the altar and they just said, God, would you accept this sacrifice? And the porch of the temple was what drew the population. They would get close enough there to be able to see the outer court actions, but only the priest had this limited access to be able to ultimately maintain the temple. The altar was to receive receive the sacrifice, and then the fire. The altar is where the sacrificial things belong to the Lord. The aroma of the sacrifice would go up into the nostrils of God on letter A there. Now notice the next part, the place in between the porch and the altar. This is the place of intercession. This is the place of prayer. As the priests would take their place in between all of the people of God, they would be representing God to the people in the altar, and they would represent the people to God. And it would be the cry of the priest to say, Lord, spare your people. Please, don't don't, don't." judge them. Please don't, don't vindicate on their life, right? This place wouldn't have bloodstains because it was the, the place between, but it would be saturated with sounds of weeping for the people. People would be weeping. Well, I'm meditating on these scriptures just a few weeks ago, and as clear as day, the Holy Spirit speaks to me. I heard a clear word from the Lord, and he said, get off the porch. Get off the porch. And at first, that word didn't make much sense to me, but I began to seek the revelation from the Lord, and I heard the Lord say, get off the porch. Many of my chosen leaders in the body of Christ are loving the adoration of the huge crowd on the porch, but I've asked you to get off of the porch. I've asked you to get between my sacrifice and the people. I'm asking you to be the bridge of intercession to represent not only me to the people, but the people to me. To, to get away from the crowd and where it's often comfortable and where we like it and where we're often, you know, in some sense applauded. And I'm calling the priest to, to move to a place of intercession again. The cries of those who will weep again for the people of this nation will be the sound of a victorious people, not a people of approval, people who are able to, I'm calling for those who want to give their yes to get off the porch and I begin to understand exactly what he's saying. We live in a generation where so many leaders have fixed themselves on the porch where it's so much easier to criticize others rather than intercede. Where it's so much easier to look at what everybody else is doing rather than you being involved and getting skin in the game. We're in a day where the porch has become the habitation of dwelling rather than the gatherings of those who are worth interceding for. Where people are being called to get off the porch and begin to be the bridge in which those that are far from God can experience His love. So even in the Old Testament, church, I want you to see that God wants us to get off the porch. Now back to the New Testament. My question remains... Why don't we obey God? Why didn't the early apostolic community do what they were told in the beginning? The Bible says they're still in Jerusalem, in the temple, on the porch. Can I tell you something? Look at me, church. If you want what is next for your life, obedience is the way to next. That's the title of my message. Obedience is the way to next. You must obey what God tells you to do. I'm going to give you some reasons why we don't obey. Can I, can I blast them for a minute this morning so I can set your heart free? Jesus can do a work in you. Here's the first reason we don't obey. Number one, fear. Fear. The early believers felt so comfortable and safe where they were on the porch. They knew the temple. It was traditional. It was their place. It was their little safe cocoon. Can I tell you, there's something in all of us, all of us that feels this internal tension between the excitement of an adventure and the fear of an adventure. We feel this something inside of us wants adventure, and I would tell you that's by the thumbprint of the Creator. God put an appetite for adventure inside of us. Listen to me. We, we may have bludgeoned it into insensibility by our own, our own fear, but it's still there. I can prove it to you. Anyone else in this room besides me not just watched it on TV, but you've actually ever, with your own body, bungee jumped before? Come on, anybody ever bungee jump? Anybody besides me in here? All right, Regine, good. We got one back there. 
Awesome, Amy. All right. Now think about that. You climb up on a tall tower. You let a stranger tie a rope around your feet. And then you pay the stranger to throw you off. Head first. Like, what's up with that? The only thing I can think of is because of the adrenaline that is yours when you watch the ground come flying up at you and you are praying to God that they measure the rope correctly. <laughs> Let me bring it down to a more basic level. Why do we go to scary movies? Like, what's up with that? We take our popcorn and we take our Coke and we sit in a dark room and we say, man, come on, scare the tar out of me. This is what I want. I pay big money to get scared because we get what? A small taste of a vicarious adventure, but we know nothing really bad can happen to us. The lion roars on the screen, but the lion can't bite us. And we like that. Why? Because you've been created by a creator to have adventure. I believe that there is something in us that longs for adventure, but there's something in us that wants to cling to the easy, safe cocoon. We just don't want to be pushed out to what's next. We don't want to be thrown off of the platform. We want to stay in Jerusalem, whatever our Jerusalem is. Come on, somebody. We want to stay on our porch, whatever our porch is. We want to stay in our temple, whatever part of our life we have memorialized and said, that's where we're going to serve God from. Whatever part of our life that we say, oh, this is what God can have. We want to cling to the safe, nice, safe, amazing cocoon and porch, even though God is saying to us, get off the porch. Take what's next. But I want to tell you something. Each adventure is different, isn't it? Did you know every one of us in this room has a different adventure, a different next? God says to someone, hey, I want you to go to your neighbor who you can't absolutely stand. And their teenager keeps riding their dirt bike through your front yard. All right? And I want you to go to that neighbor next door, and I want you to invite them to church with you. And inviting them to church, I want you to tell them in that moment that Jesus loves them. I want you to communicate, Jesus loves you. And you know what you do? You say, Lord... <laughs> Here am I, send him. Right? Lord, here am I, but send her. Why? Because we feel the risk, right? We, we sense they might do something horrible to us. They might reject us. They might tell us no. They might say no to go to church with us. Can I just say, we have lived a pretty tidy little cocoon in American Christianity. And I think it's been very easy to be a Christian in America. It's been real easy, folks. But I want to say something to you this morning. I want you to hear me. And if you hear me wrong, you hear me wrong. I want you to hear me right. I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. I've been used prophetically at times. So what I'm about to say is not a prophecy. If you heard it as such, you heard it incorrectly. But what I am is I'm an observer of human history. And what I sense now in our time is that the darkness in our nation is descending. And I think it very well may get much, much darker and darker before the sun comes up. And I think it's going to get more and more difficult in the United States of America to be a Christian. And I think there's going to be more and more punitive laws passed against families and more and more laws passed against government or against schooling and against what it means to be a Christian where it's not going to be a cocoon to be a Christian anymore. And can I tell you something? I am 100% sure that's not the bad part. Because I think it might finally, finally drive nice, safe, cozy weekend Christians into the situation where they get out on the adventure where God says, now you wouldn't move, I'll move you for you. Get off the porch. You're not going to do what I ask you to do? And then we got Christians that are still praying against that kind of challenge and, and, and persecution. I'm not sure if that's what we should pray. In our day and age, I'm not sure. When I read the book of Acts, in order for next to be now, they needed some persecution. In order to be obedient to what Jesus had asked them to do, the problem is what we, we don't want to let go of that nice, safe cocoon. We want to hold on to it. Listen to me. Listen. Jesus, next slide, did not die on a cross to keep us safe. He died on a cross to make us dangerous. Jesus in Matthew 16 said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. You know what that means? Faithfulness right now, y'all, is not holding down the fort. Faithfulness right now is storming the gates of hell. 
It's going after the people God wants us to go after, being obedient to what God has called us to be obedient to. Listen to me. The will of God, friends, is not an insurance plan. It is a daring plan. It is an adventurous plan. I remember years ago, Meredith and I, we were on staff at a church called Free Chapel over in, in Gainesville, Georgia, and we were there three plus years, and we had a fantastic ride. Honestly, we had a fantastic ride. We had reached, uh, by the end of those three years, hundreds of teens, hundreds of young adults. I was serving in next-gen ministry at that time, doing Thursday night services called The Turn, but we had built up our team to a healthy spot, folks. We were growing. I literally, by the end of the time, could have led the ministry with half my brain tied behind my back, meaning we had leaders in place. It, it, it had gotten... It had gotten cocoonish. It had gotten to a place where, man, it was, we were moving. It was just cozy. I don't know how to say it. It was flowing. It was moving. And at that time, we only had uh, one child at the time, Knox. That time, I was asked by a, a leader who was in Cleveland, Tennessee, to consider coming back to Cleveland, Tennessee, where I'd gone to school, to a flagship church for a denomination called the Church of God, to consider coming and doing high school ministry. And I said, no, sir, what do you mean I'm going to come back? I had a $125,000 budget for student ministry alone at the church I was at. I was being asked to go to a church that had a $12,000 a year ministry budget, okay, for youth. I was going from, I don't know, at that time with young adults and teenagers together, 700 on a weekly basis and to go to a high school ministry with maybe 65 students at the time. And I said, no. Well, they kept asking me. In fact, they wouldn't give up on asking me. And one person in particular... Um, let me just say real quick, just years earlier, I had told Meredith, she contested this, when we left Cleveland the first time after getting married in Chattanooga, I remember saying, I will never, ever, ever go back to Cleveland, Tennessee after college. I'm never going to move back, all right? Ben, let me help you out real quick, all right? This is Ben Crawford. I want you to look right here at me, okay? I'm going to help you. God writes down everything you say, and before you die, he makes you eat every bite of it. Okay, so I'm going to help you out. So if you tell God, I will never do something, it is coming real quickly. I will never do it. And so two months later, I'm the student pastor at North Cleveland Church of God. <laughs> but it was not an easy decision. It was, it was dying. The student minister was lethargic. I come to the altar the first day and they got couches in the altar. Now, if y'all know anything about the way I minister, I don't, I don't tend to minister with couches in the altar. Okay. So kids just come and hang out at the couches, okay? And, 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 and again, at Free Chapel time, it was wonderful. No one was mad at me. Mary and I had friends. We moved to Cleveland. We had no friends. We literally cried after the first event we went to, which was a Christmas party. We went out to the parking lot, and we looked at each other like, what in the world did we just do? One night, when I hadn't made the decision yet, after all these calls, we went up to Cleveland. We weren't even, we hadn't even made the decision to come yet. And I had a meeting. I went to the, we went to this guy's house and we're sitting down at the meeting and it was an impromptu. He said, I'm going to call the pastor of North Cleveland. He's just going to come over here and meet with you guys. Just, just let him have a conversation with you. And so he comes into the room and we have a conversation. We left that night. I could take you to the place on 75 South after we pass exit 25 uh, uh, in, in Cleveland. I could take you to the place. We're driving South. We're real quiet after we leave the meeting and Meredith looks over at me and she says, Craig, are you beginning to worry that this North Cleveland thing might be from God? And I said, I sure am. I am concerned about it. <laughs> and I remember she said something. She said, um, if this is God, what would keep us from going? And I said, it's just flowing here. Resources is here. I just talked to Pastor Jensen last week. He asked me, why in the world are you going to the church of God? There's no money there. You got all the money in the world you want here. But then I looked at her and I said, I just don't want my comfort zone to dictate my destiny. I wonder if anybody feels that way this morning. Listen to me. Look at me. God can give you a comfort zone if you want a comfort zone. But if you want to get out on the cutting edge of the adventure, God says to you this morning, you need to come on out further. You need to trust me and obey. Let's get off of this porch. You can catch the little tiny fish in the surf if you want to catch the little tiny fish. But if you want to catch some big fish, you need to launch out into the deep. Come out further. And of course, it's scary, isn't it? And then guess what happens? Five years pass and God asks us to do it again. This time he tells us, with church planning, sell your house, sell one of your cars, raise your own money. Y'all, at that time, I could have gone to any established Church of God congregation probably in the southeastern United States. 
I could have gone and had a comfortable salary. I could have gone with a church with hundreds of people. Instantly, established, comfortable, moving forward, mobilizing people, buildings. I wouldn't be raising money for a building. Buildings established. So you may be in this room and you may be scared to be obedient. I'm going to tell you it's okay this morning. Just do it scared. God knows exactly who we are. And listen to me, listen to me. Next slide. It's time to quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. You need to stop living that way. That's not God's intent. That's not God's desire. Next is now. So the first reason that we're reluctant in obeying God is to get off the porch is simply because the porch is safe. And it's our porch. And here's the funny thing, y'all. Even if your porch is difficult, it's still our painful porch. I I know people that have a painful porch, but because it's their porch, they're still willing to stay on their painful porch rather than go to what's next. Are you with me? Even if it's a difficult porch, they like the difficult porch because it's their porch. We just don't want to try something different. Here's the second reason people don't get off the porch. They don't obey God. Tribalism. 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 Now, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem don't want to go elsewhere because the Jews were all where? They were in Israel. They want to stay with the Jews. They didn't want to go to the Gentiles. They didn't want to be elsewhere. They didn't want to be around non-Jews. You know the, the, the tribalism between the Jews and the Samaritans, right? The Samaritans, by the way, were at least the cousins of the Jews, y'all. They were geographically with them. It wasn't like God asked them to go to the Greeks immediately or the Romans, like just the Samaritans. And in Samaria, there's a revival going on. We don't want to be with people that are not our kind, do we? I believe, can I, can I say something real quick? I believe that one of Satan's most demonic strategies to hinder the gospel is to set us up in tribes, to set us up in our silos, all kinds of tribes, y'all, not just racial tribes. We got political tribes in America. That's the hallmark of the 21st century, isn't it? It's tribalism. We're divided and we peer at each other from our own porch and say, don't come on my porch. You don't come on my porch. I don't come on your porch. I mean, look at the pandemic we just got through. Did we not have tribes in the pandemic? We divided them up into Muscovites and non-Muscovites. We had Magasites, Trump, MAGA, Magasites and non-Magasites, right? We had people that are doing everything they can to divide. You don't vote this way. I don't vote that way. You don't vote my way. Now, listen to me. Some of you may not like this, but I'm not a politician, so I'm not running for anything, nor am I old enough to run for anything. But look at me. Look at me. If your fundamental self-identity arises from anything, I don't care if it's culture, if it's politics, if it's, front, if it's national frontier, if it's race, if your self-identity arises from anything that supersedes your identity in Christ, that's a sin. It's a sin. It's wrong. It has to be repented of. It is satanic to separate us into tribes, to keep us afraid of one another. And then what we do is we project onto those people. We project onto them our fears. We can't even talk to the people next door in our neighborhood about Jesus because we're not sure what tribe they're in. Are they going to accept or not? Are they going to talk to us or not? What do they want to have conversation about? It's, it's demonic. It's demonic. Let me tell you a quick story. There's a young man when I was in Cleveland, Tennessee, who died in our community. He had only been to our youth ministry one time. And I got contacted one day, it was on a, like a Monday, to come do his funeral because he had nobody in his life. His family had nobody in his life who could conduct such a thing. And so I got called on a Monday. I never told you this story before. Uh, several people maybe know. But I, I remember agreeing. I said, I was born at night to the funeral man, you know, the director. I said, but I wasn't born last night. I said, what's going on in his life? And it was a terrible situation, tragic death. And I remember showing up on a Wednesday because I had to go do the funeral and then leave real quickly and try to get to to youth to preach because I preached every Wednesday night. And I remember showing up at the funeral and the funeral had probably 150 students there. And I walk in and the funeral director pulls me off to the side in his office and he said, hey, I know who you are. I said, yeah, I know who you are. You know, he attends our church. And he said, I'm just telling you, man, good luck with this one. I'm praying for you. And I said, well, listen, did they give you music to play? And he said, yeah, they gave me music. And I said, well, I don't know what the music is. I said, but here, I've got a CD in my car. It's Selah. He <laughs> means the Southern gospel, like acapella, you know? And, uh, and uh, I said, just at least play this song before I get up to share, okay? So I go into the funeral, and there's 150 people in there, families weeping, students weeping, young kids, young kid, a 17-year-old died. And I sit down on the front row, 
And they got the casket up here and the lectern's next to it. And they start playing no, the music. And it's this rock headbanger music of, we're going to blow your MF and brains out. Blow your... That was the first song. Then the next song was about seeking out, again, just essential living and experience. And I'm sitting there and I feel like if I could see in the spirit realm, literally demons and angels warring, right? And here I am about to get up and share the gospel. So my Selah kicks in. <laughs> Selah. You don't know who Selah is. Try to listen to that first song followed up by the Selah song. And after the Selah song, I get up and I preach the gospel. And I am feeling like I am carrying a million pounds in that room. And I'm just preaching the gospel out of John chapter 11. I get to the end of preaching the gospel. And I said, is there anybody in here who wants to give their life to Christ? And I look back in the dead section. There's a young man. And he not only raises his hand, he turns around and gets on his knees. And so I pray and I get done. I'm thinking, oh, this is a failure. I go out, that young man finds me, and he starts talking to me. And this is a man who, again, been friends with a guy that I didn't run in those tribes. And I remember we talked out on the front parking lot that night, and, and I told him about Jesus again, just assured him of the gospel. And he said, hey, well, listen, can, can all of that be, be, be like really mine? And I said, I said, it can be yours. And he said, the issue isn't whether I accept Jesus. He said, well, Jesus accept me? I said, absolutely, he'll accept you. And I got to pray with that young man right out there in that parking lot. Now, there would be 149 people that didn't maybe respond that way, but there was one young man that day that responded. And I began to develop a relationship with him as a young man who gave his heart to Jesus in the midst of a crisis of a friend that, that had gotten shot. Listen, if, if that tribe separates me from them, how will I ever penetrate that tribe? If I don't get out on the, the cutting edge of the adventure, how can we talk to our next door neighbor if they look and talk different than me, Craig? Listen, we need to hear that faint whisper from the Lord this morning to say, get off of your porch. Get off the porch. Our tribalism, it separates us. It keeps us from obedience. Here's the third reason. First one, fear of the adventure. Second reason, tribalism. Third reason, this is my final one. Third reason, we doubt God for the outcome. So that's my wife at dinner or lunch. We did a lunch date Friday. I said, babe, you don't even know my points yet, but let me just talk to me for a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about what the number one reasons, number two, number three of why people don't obey God when God asks them to move what's next. And then I shared this one with her. We don't trust God for the outcome. If God would say to us, hey, go next door to the crack house. I want you to witness to them. They're all going to fall on the floor. They're going to get saved. After they get saved, they're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. After they get baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're going to report it to your pastors. The next Sunday, they're going to bring you up on the platform. And then you're going to give a testimony. And the next week, you're going to be a celebrity evangelist. And you're going to start traveling and telling everybody else how to win people Jesus. And then your book, you're going to write a book and you're going to sell thousands, right? All of you be like, "Woo! I am ready, God. Yes, God, that's what I'll do. But the problem is God says, do what I'm telling you to do. And you say, God, well, what will be the outcome? And God says, I'm not discussing that with you. And he won't ever because he doesn't ever in, in, in any, any passage in Scripture. He tells you to do something. Well, what's going to be the outcome? I, I didn't, I didn't, that's not our conversation, Craig. I'm asking you to obey. See, listen, look at me. Look at me, church. I keep asking God for clarity. He keeps asking me for trust. And he wins every time. He wins every time. So what does that mean? We want to obey God like our teenagers obey us. Go clean up your room. Okay. I'm going, but I want you to know you've ruined my life. <sighs> Ruin my life going to clean up your room? So watch this. Here's a great revival. The whole city gets saved. The whole city's baptized. The apostles Peter and John come down. The Bible says they see the revival. And the next verse says they go right back to Jerusalem. But the angel of the Lord speaks to Philip, not the apostle, the deacon, the one waiting tables. It was Philip that punctured the tribal balloon. It was Philip that was sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. It was Philip, not the apostle. And the Bible says the angel spoke to him and said, now, now, next is now. Now, now, Philip, go down to the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, and your text says, my text says, which is desert? Go down to the desert road. 
Folks, am I the only one in this room where God gives you an entire city? You have a miracle of signs and wonders. You have a revival that's authenticated and it's totally endorsed by apostolic presence from another city. I know what I would say at that moment. After I went a whole city to Jesus, I'd say, okay, Lord, that takes care of Samaria. What city's next? Where you want me to go next, God? How about Athens? How about, how about Rome? Can I, I, can I just propose Rome to you, Lord? I want to get Caesar saved. I think Rome sounds really, really good. Where do you want me to go now? And God says, go down to the desert road to Gaza. Now, folks, you better buckle in right now because this is the word of the Lord. This is the encouraging word of the Lord for me right now in my season of life. Where do you want me to go, God? I want you to go right into the desert road, the road that nobody else is traveling. I'm asking you to leave everything that's successful. I'm asking you to leave everything that looks good on the outside, everything that's fruitful. I'm asking you to leave everything you thought you were. Do you, you see what that means? It means that God's geography is not the same as your geography. And with God, the shortest distance between two points is not always a straight line. Meaning, what you think God is, is God's going to lead you from city to city, and city to bigger city, and bigger city to bigger city. And God says, I'll give you a revival. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now what? A desert. And God doesn't make it easy for him. God doesn't tell him the outcome. He says, Philip, go down there. He just says, go down the road. And he makes it clear it's a desert. And Philip obeys. So what does he do? He's walking down the desert road. He's like, okay. And he sees a chariot coming along. And there's an Ethiopian eunuch in it who's been to Jerusalem to, to be saved and not saved. And he's going back because he's the chief financial officer to Candace. Candace is the queen of Ethiopia. And he's going back to Candace, unsaved, no gospel. And the spirit speaks to Philip and says, Philip, approach the chariot. And the very next verse is so pivotal, folks. The very next verse says... He ran to the chariot. I'm going to tell you something. If we obey God reluctantly, like our teens obey us, God will take and use whatever we give him. But what he wants for us is for us to hear the slightest whisper and run towards that whisper. What he wants for us is to hear what he's asking us to do and to run to that obedience. And Philip runs to the chariot, and you know what he does? He climbs into the chariot, and he looks at the Ethiopian eunuch, and this is the first Gentile. We always say Cornelius is the first Gentile saved. No, he wasn't. This Ethiopian eunuch is. He looks at him and he says, hey, what are you reading? He said, I'm reading from the book of Isaiah. He said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how could I unless somebody explains it to me? And then you know what the Bible says? Watch this. And beginning where he was, Philip began to talk to him about Jesus. Beginning where he was, he began to talk to him about Jesus. Remember, this is a different tribe. This is a different race. This is a different people, a different nation. And Philip begins where he is. Listen to me. Listen to me. We can't ask everyone to get to where we are before we talk about Jesus. We have to get to where they are. It's not uh, them, them becoming like us. It's us becoming like them. It's us doing whatever we got to do to get in their world, to puncture their world, to start where they're at, to have conversations where they are. And he gets saved. He gives his life to Jesus. And he looks at Philip and he says, hey, is there anything preventing me from getting baptized? He said, no. Nah. If you believed on the Lord Jesus, you can get baptized. He said, hey, chariot driver, time out. Paul, stop this thing. He stops the thing. He looks over and he sees a pond. And you know what he does? He says, Philip, would you baptize me in the pond? They go down to the pond. You know what happens? The Bible says they climb down out of the chariot. Philip puts his hand on his nose. He baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Bible says the moment he comes up out of the water, Philip is translated. And he's translated immediately taken to somewhere else. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 40. As soon as he comes up out of the water, Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and began to preach on the street corners. He lands in Azotus. He lands instantly, just translated. You know, let me ask you a question. I have a biblical question that I have asked the brightest scholars that I know. And they don't have an answer for me. Here it is. You ready? When Philip landed in Azotus, was he still wet? <laughs> Does translation dry you out? The Bible says he's up to waist deep. He baptizes him. And the moment the dude comes up out of the water, the dude whose hand was on his nose is gone. He's translated and he's on another street corner and he's preaching the gospel somewhere else. What does it all mean? Look at me, church. It means that the miracle of your life is at the end of a desert road. <laughs> Woo! It means the miracle of what God calls you to in obedience is at the end of the desert road. God says, get off the porch. 
and he takes him to Samaria and he blows his life up with a revival and he doesn't tell you what's going to be the result. He just keeps going further and further. And after the revival comes a desert road. And the miracle, look at me, church, the miracle of what God wants to do through you in the lives of other people. Listen to me. It is further down the road. You got to keep being obedient. And let me tell you, friend, God doesn't have to explain it to you. He owes you no explanation. This week when I was reading through this, that's what the Lord stirred me. And then I received a, a, a prophetic word of encouragement from one of my mentors. His name is Billy Wilson. He's the president of ORU, and he reached out to me. And he said, Craig, God continues to strengthen you and establish you. And then he said one word that just stirred my soul. He said, I want you to know the most significant blessings in your life are ahead of you, and you need to keep on digging. You keep on digging. The miracle's at the end of the desert road. Next is now. But you have to obey. So what does that mean for you? It means we have to obey, friends. I want to read a couple of scriptures and I'm going to close this down. Look at Philippians 2 and 8. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. This is Jesus. Jesus found in human form, humbled himself and became obedient. Everybody say obedient. To death, even death on a cross. Do you know what that word obedient means there? It's, it's a Greek word, hupakuo. And it means hupo, which means under, and a kuo means I hear. So when you put obedient together, it means that the obedient life is one in which we listen with great attention to God's Spirit among us. Obedience for Jesus and obedience for us is hupakuo, under listening. We have to be, we have to be so intent. Listen to me. God works through simple obedience. You know what Mary, the mother of Jesus, told the servants to do at the wedding at Canaan Galilee? Whatever that man, he's my boy, he tells you to do, you do it. And you know what he told him to do? Fill the pots with water. Listen to me. When you realize we do simple work and God does saving work, we do whatever he asks us to do and he protects the outcome of that obedience. He protects it when you trust him to do whatever God is asking you to do. I'm going to give you a challenge, okay? Give you a challenge. Look right here. This is a challenge I've started doing. It's really been helpful for me. Maybe it'll be helpful for you. When you go throughout your day, throughout your day this week, whenever you pass somebody, every person you encounter, I want you just to take your lips and I want you to whisper a prayer under your breath for every person you encounter. So if it's the store clerk, just whisper. It might be 10 seconds. If you see a teenager riding his bike down your street, just whisper a prayer. Lord, just bless that kid. Lord, show him your glory. You see a senior adult on a walk through your neighborhood, Lord, just bless him. Now, why, Craig? Why? Because you might be the only person on earth praying for them. On the whole planet. And every person deserves prayer. And if you will start living like that, you will hear the voice of the Lord. And he'll say, stop what you're doing, walk over to him, and tell him what I tell you to say. God does this. God speaks to people. And he can speak to anybody. Did you know this? God can speak to unbelievers. God can speak to anybody he wants to speak to. But I have to be what? I have to be obedient. I have to be sensitive. Look at me, church. God has a plan for every one of your lives. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, to prosper you, to har not harm you, but to give you a hope and a future. It's God's will that you would be powerfully saved. It's God's will that you would be baptized in the Spirit. It's God's will that you'd be healed. It's God's will you have great faith. It's God's will that abundance in the Spirit is yours. It's all of God's will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But watch this. Transformation comes only by obeying and constantly yielding. Listen to me. You still are captive to your past unless you make the decision every day to yield and obey every time God shows you something. Look what the text says, 1 Samuel 15, 22. 
1 Samuel 15, 22, uh, previous slide, it says to obey uh, is better than sacrifice. To obey, obey Jesus. So if I spend my whole life sacrificing without obeying, I'll never find victory. If I sacrifice, 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 but I don't obey, I'll never find God's plan for me. This is what 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says. Look at the next slide. So power. This is the love of God that we what? We obey. We keep his commandments. So I want to tell you this story. I'm going to close this down. There's this story I mentioned to you two weeks ago. It's in the book of Acts chapter 19 where the seven sons of Sceva, they get their clothes ripped off of them by demons and they take off running. There's this crazy story. I want you to see it in Acts chapter 19. I'm going to read verse 15 and 16, okay? These men would say to the demon-possessed men, in the name of Jesus, be free. But the seven sons of Sceva were doing this, and one day the evil spirit, the demon, said to them, hey, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them, and gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, I want you to leave that up there. You can be a Christian. You can have a good reputation in your church. You can say all the right words. You can know all the right phrases. You can know all the right answers, and you can still be powerless. You can be powerless over Satan and powerless in authority. You know why? Next slide, because powerlessness is the result of not having the resemblance of Jesus in your spirit. And you know what demons look at when you speak? They look inside. They look at your spirit. They're not just listening to your words. They said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who in the world are you? You're speaking from your mouth, but you have a spirit that doesn't look like Jesus. And until you get a spirit that looks like Jesus, you won't have authority in the spiritual world. And so they look right at the man and they say, hey, we don't know who you are. That's why the Bible says we have to what? Obey. Because when we obey, we submit ourselves to God. We resist the devil and he flees from us. Listen to me, church. The more that you and I yield and surrender, the more we are possessed by the Holy Spirit and the more we become like Christ. And then the more we become like Christ, the more authority Jesus can exert through you in the spiritual realm. So I'm gonna give you a quick law this morning and I want you to never forget it. Next slide. This is the law. Obedience to Jesus brings possession of the spirit. And the more you possess of the spirit, it brings Christ likeness to your spirit. And when you have Christ likeness in your spirit, you have power in your everyday life. And so when I obey, I become more Christ like. When I become more Christ like, I become more powerful. And if you want what God has for you moving forward, it starts with obedience. Obedience. Just say, God, I want to be obedient. I want you to notice this. Peter and John are not the heroes of the story. They're the apostles, but they're in Jerusalem while Philip is in Samaria, and it's Philip that paves the way. It's Philip who's on the edge. It's Philip that doesn't worry about the results. It's Philip that's not ordained as an evangelist. It's Philip that is literally ordained to wait tables. You know what that means, church? There is no one in this room. There's no Christian under the sound of my voice for whom it is unable for God to use you. And the miracle's not on the porch. It's all on the desert road. And God has something for each of you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.